Bienvenue and welcome back to the Land of Desire. I'm your host, Diana, and I'm so glad to be back here in my little closet with my little table talking into my big microphone to all of you. In the last few weeks, I took a much-needed vacation and then attended the Work It Festival for Women in Podcasting. It's an understatement to say this host is fired up. While I was out of town, your generous contributions helped me hit my next fundraising goal on Patreon. Thanks to all of these lucky supporters, I've got a lot of work to do. Not only will I be sending out the newest episode of the Land of Desire newsletter very soon, it sounds like it's time to share some bonus episodes. That's right, you heard me. Every Patreon supporter, no matter their contribution level, will be receiving access to bonus episodes of The Land of Desire beginning this month. I'll share some more information at the end of today's episode. In the meantime, of course, I'm so excited to share with all of you dear listeners a project that I've been working on for a long time. During the show's first anniversary, so many of you expressed interest in learning about areas of France outside of Paris and periods of time besides the 1890s. Listeners, I felt the same way. Today's episode marks the beginning of a big, audacious miniseries, a miniseries which will take us away from the glittering city of lights and into the mysterious, thrilling, and often hilarious countryside of France. We'll explore long-lost languages, delicious foods, baffling rituals, and unforgettable events, all of which make up the true heart and soul of a nation which is so often defined by a single city. Today marks the premiere of the Land of Desire's very own, very special Tour de France. When I was 19 years old and living in France for the first time, I decided it was time to escape the city and go on an adventure. Along with three of my friends, we boarded a train for Vernon, about 49 miles or 78 kilometers outside of Paris. The train ride only took an hour, but by the time we stepped onto the platform at Vernon, the bustling city had already fallen away. Stopping into a local cafe, we drank a coffee, we pet the friendly neighborhood cat, we rented four bicycles for the day, and we set out for our destination, Giverny, home of Claude Monet and his famous Japanese gardens. Bicycling to Giverny, the four of us sang songs, admired the farms, and took in the beautiful rolling countryside around us. Monet's home was peaceful and beautiful, and we took our time strolling around the gardens and little red bridges in his backyard. On the way back, we set our bikes down on the side of the road to watch a brand new baby lamb take its very first steps just minutes after being born, while behind us the wheat fields shimmered in the breeze. I've always considered this the best day I've ever had in France. Throughout the day, we struck up conversations with the locals, who would ask us how our trip was going and where we were coming from. When they'd find out we were living in Paris, they'd all scoff and go, ah, no, that's not France, that's Paris. 
And while I can't pass judgment on the Frenchness of Paris, I can say that it astonished me how different the world felt out here. Parisians do things differently, the locals said, and it was true. Only an hour away from the Rue de Rivoli, France was no longer the world of the Eiffel Tower and gleaming white apartment buildings, delicate macarons and grand palaces. Here, France was a series of modest but well-kept fields, farm animals, quiet back roads, and clocks that seemed to run slower. If the world could become so different, so quickly, what would I see further down the road? What kind of France existed another hour away? Six hours away? What kind of France existed in the middle of the countryside? What about next to Italy? What about next to Spain? What does someone in Paris have in common with someone in Vernon? How many kinds of French people were there? And what makes someone truly French anyway? To answer these questions and more, we're going to spend the next six weeks recreating one of the most famous explorations of the French countryside ever conducted. This exploration didn't take place on trains or even in cars, but on one of the most profoundly revolutionary inventions to enter the lives of the average French person, the bicycle. In 1903, a Parisian newspaper editor announced a crazy new contest, a bicycle race which would stretch over 1,500 miles or 2,400 kilometers, carrying cyclists through the mountains, the coastline, the flatlands, and the farms of France. Some of the routes taken by the cyclists were ancient, set down by Julius Caesar on top of routes which were already old to begin with. Some of the routes taken by the cyclists were brand new, representing a French countryside just beginning to reveal itself to the larger world. We'll follow the route taken by these pioneering cyclists, beginning in the tiny suburb of Montgeron, then heading for Lyon, Marseille, Toulouse, Bordeaux, Nantes, and then finally back to Paris. Furthermore, we'll try to get closer to the history of the land by examining its most enduring expression, food. In each leg of our journey, we'll investigate the history of a food, a drink, or a meal which represents that region and its people. However, this isn't a story about the six landmark cities of the route. It's a story about the spaces in between. This miniseries is a story about what lays beyond the road, about the thousands of miles between cities, about the France which doesn't get its own dot on the map. The contestants of the first Tour de France spent 18 days exploring the nation, and only a few of those days were within cities. The rest of the race was spent out in the villages, the rural communities, the farms, and the vast, mysterious countryside, which constitute what the residents of Vernon might call a true Tour de France. On the afternoon of July 1st, 1903, 60 men stood nervously at the edge of the known world. On the search for glory, adventure, and 1,500 francs, which is about the yearly wage of your average working man, 
they all gathered in the tiny village of Montgeron, just outside the boundaries of Paris, in front of the Reve Matin Café. It was indescribably hot, and anyone curious enough to watch the beginning of this widely publicized, absurdly long race retreated inside out of the sun. The riders were sweltering in three-piece suits and leather boots next to their ramshackle bicycles, from which a bit of ragged red fabric was hanging down, displaying their race numbers. Yet the organizers of the race were certain that this moment would constitute one of the great dates of our history, a race which wouldn't just unite the cities and villages of 20th century France, but a race which would bring modernity to the people of the countryside. As the organizers imagined in their publicity leading up to this day, a villager at the hour when the sun sets and disappears behind the horizon sits on a wooden bench outside his home. He puffs on his pipe and rests after working the earth since daybreak. Suddenly, a cloud of dust rises up there on the road, and like white demons, three or four men pass in front of the light at full speed, as in flight, their legs hardly seeming to touch the ground. The memory of those men will be indelible in the mind of the villager. Continuing into the great city centers and in the villages, the crowd will crush together to see these same men pass by, and the feeling of stupefied admiration felt by the peasant will also take over all the city dwellers, and the great race will do its work. At 3.16 p.m. exactly, the organizers fired the starter pistol and the cyclists sped away. They didn't have time to think about the heat, or the dust, or the conditions of the road ahead of them. They had 290 miles, or 467 kilometers, to cover before they'd be allowed to stop and rest. The few spectators shielded their eyes from the sun, but there was little to see. Within minutes, the men disappeared from view in a cloud of choking dust. Ahead of them, there was only the unknown. France is slightly smaller than the state of Texas, but within its borders live 67 million people. Of those people, 18%, or about one out of every six, live in the greater Paris metropolitan area. It's not difficult to see why Paris dominates French headlines in the 21st century. But for most of French history, Paris has been, in terms of its size and its population, insignificant. By 1850, Paris had a greater population than the next eight biggest cities in France combined. But that Paris only represented 3% of the overall population of France. Take a moment to think about everything you know about French history from the dawn of time until the Industrial Revolution. Now realize that for that entire time, at least 97% of the population lives somewhere besides Paris, and 90% of the population lives somewhere besides the other cities of France. So where did the 90% of the French live? The answer is alone. 
By the French Revolution, only one in five French people lived anywhere large enough to be called a town. The other 80% lived in, to put it simply, the boonies. They didn't just lack neighborhoods, they lacked neighbors. While crowded, sweaty mobs were swarming the streets of revolutionary Paris, nearly one in three residents of France lived in areas so remote that all of their neighbors could fit in your living room. As one historian wrote, a peasant girl who went to work in Paris might, when looking through the scullery window at the street, see more people at a glance than she had known in her entire previous life. To leave the streets of Paris was to venture into a vast, lonely land, which emerged only a few miles from one's own front door. Even before one left the city limits, the carriage-choked streets of downtown Paris gave way to fields and farm animals. Parisians in the 9th and 15th arrondissements were growing rye and barley, while the outer perimeter of the city was still devoted to wine. Once one passed through the toll gates of the city, the outlying villages were little more than farms, devoted to growing the asparagus, peas, and green beans which filled up the markets of the capital. One English farmer wrote in 1788 of his astonishment as he approached the city gates of Paris, eagerly on the watch for that throng of carriages which, near London, impede the traveler, I watched in vain, for the road quite to the gates, is, on comparison, a perfect desert. Montgeron first shows up in the historical record as far back as 1147, and it sat just outside the main road out of Paris. The village pops up throughout history as kings, revolutionary forces, and bandits pass through. Montgeron was a long-established, well-known area with an ancient history, and at no point before the Tour de France did it ever contain more than a thousand people. In 1807, a Lieutenant Colonel Ninian Pinckney visited Paris for the first time. In his memoirs, he wrote, I had again occasion to observe how much the environment of Paris differed from those of London. Scarcely had we reached our first stage of the journey, about seven miles, before every appendage of a metropolitan city had disappeared. With the single exception of the road, which still continued worthy of a great nation, the scenery and objects were as retired as in the most remote corner of England. You get but a few miles from Paris before you find yourself amongst a new order of beings. If it was hard to find a reason to stay in Montgeron, it was even harder to find a way to leave. As a different traveler mentioned in her 1834 travel diary, the road was rough, even during summer. For a woman who would have spent her entire life journeying around in a spine-rattling, horse-drawn carriage over roads which were at best paved with cobblestones, rough road is quite an indictment. Yet as small and insignificant as Montgeron may have been, it was warm comfort compared to the vast loneliness of the territory ahead. As Lieutenant Colonel Pinckney continued on his exploration of France, he grew further astonished at the modest nature of the settlements he encountered. 
The cities were more like towns, and the towns were more like villages. As he wrote, In a principal town in England, you will invariably find a considerable number of good houses where retired merchants and tradesmen live in the ease and elegance of private gentlemen. There is nothing of this kind in the French towns. Every house is a shop, a warehouse, a magazine, or a lodging house. There are absolutely no interior towns in France, like Norwich, Manchester, and Birmingham. As he passed southward on his way to Lyon, anticipating the bicycle route which would follow more or less the same path a hundred years later, Pinckney noted the vast proportion of waste in this province. As he traveled towards the village of Nevers, approximately halfway through the first stage of the 1903 Tour de France route, Pinckney admired the fields, the meadows, the gently rising hills. Nature here reigns in all her loveliness. The peasant girls were milking their cows. Here, surrounding one of the most ancient cathedrals in France, the pretty village of Nevers was a tiny group of cottages surrounded by corn farms and vast woods. His next stop, the so-called town of Moulin, was a maze of crops and fruit trees whose simple benevolence called to mind the primeval ages. Here in Moulin, the seat of the House of Bourbon, which had produced every French king from 1589 until the French Revolution, quote, the streets are narrow, the houses dark, and built in the worst possible style. Getting out of Moulin was an even bigger nightmare. As Pinckney wrote, During the whole of our first day's journey out of Moulin, wrote Pinckney, the country is a succession of hills and valleys, of fields and woodland. We had got now into roads comparatively very bad. The route of the first Tour de France followed traditional trading routes, and the route from Paris to Lyon almost perfectly retraced Pinckney's journey a hundred years prior. Yet even in the 20th century, a route which looked nice on paper, linking major cities together by way of established towns, turned out to be a fiction. Those comparatively very bad roads which had plagued Pinckney's journey, they were still there in 1903, essentially unchanged. One rider aching his way through the dirt roads and cobblestones of Moulin a hundred years later asked, just how much further could we be from Paris? Traveling down a French road was often like traveling through time. Carriages traveled no more than 50 miles in a day because the roads were so poorly maintained. The tail end of a fishing boat, wrote one 19th century traveler, is only a gentle swaying hammock compared to the brutal jostling of the post coach. The springs play tennis with the traveler, and when there are four passengers in the coach, it is an incessant battle, pitting nose to nose, a murderous duel pitting forehead to forehead. Well into the industrial age, French maps pointed out Roman roads set down by Caesar's own troops, not because they were neat historical artifacts, but because they were the best roads at the time. As one 18th century wit observed, 
Compared to the Roman roads, which lasted throughout the ages, a typical French road could be destroyed in its first year by a moderate-sized colony of moles. Why were French roads so terrible? Well, to begin with, they were built on forced labor, the dreaded corvée, which drafted just about every man between ages 12 and 70 to repair roads for a third of the year. Pulling able-bodied men away from work for long periods of time and minimal pay, the corvée was like jury duty mixed with back-breaking manual labor. They put about as much effort and craft into the roads as you would under the circumstances. Since the nobles were in charge of these forced roadworks, it should come as no surprise that the best roads were not those in practical areas, like the path from one village to the next or from the church to the market, but rather the driveway of the local chateau. Only a mind as organized and efficient as Napoleon Bonaparte could overcome thousands of years of bad engineering. Yet even his mammoth achievements mostly consisted of improving the 229 Route Imperiale, which with very few resources to improve travel among the villages. By the 1850s, most French villages were connected to a main road, but that road may not take you everywhere you needed to go, and heaven help you if you weren't interested in traveling in the direction of the capital. All roads lead to Paris, and I do mean all. By the age of the Belle Epoque, even as hot air balloonists in Paris were testing the limits of human flight, a resident of Moulin standing in his doorway, looking at the mountains of Auvergne just south of him, would need to travel all the way back up to Paris to catch a carriage and travel all the way back down again if he wanted to visit. With such vacant countryside and dismal towns along the way, the cyclists followed a long tradition of French travelers by bringing along their own food for the road. For most tourists, according to historian Graham Robb, the true taste of France was stale bread. Alexandre Dumas complained of three nights without drinking, nor eating, nor barely breathing while on the road. One 18th century traveler's guide notes that standard provisions on the road consisted of smoked and salted meat, potatoes, and cheese. I advise you to take with you some private provisions. This was better living than the locals. A hundred years later, most rural French people were still surviving on coarse bread produced from the worst quality grains, never butcher's meat, on feast days, some vegetables, cheese in summer, some potatoes in winter. A single pig fed a family over the course of an entire year. Most French peasants lived off the land, grazing on the berries and fruits and nuts that they could find growing wild. During the first Tour de France, cyclists did the same. With no scheduled pit stops, the competitors ate whatever they could find, scrounging raw oysters, sausages, and of course, stale bread. To quench their thirst, the cyclists drank anything but water. The well water of rural France was still considered so unsafe in 1903 that the cyclists drank wine instead.
The cyclists of the Tour de France, arrogant as they may have been about quote-unquote bringing modernity to the poor peasants of the backcountry, were at least excited about the prospect of visiting the backcountry. For most of French history, there was simply no interest in the kind of sightseeing and tourism which was becoming popular throughout the rest of Europe. As one historian wrote, there was little to enable a traveler to plan a tour of the country and plenty to encourage him to stay at home. While Lizzie Bennett was joining her aunt and uncle for a tour of the Lake County in 1813's Pride and Prejudice, the French remained unenlightened and uninterested about their own backyard. As one French writer advised foreign tourists, with a year's stay in Paris followed by two or three weeks in some of the principal towns, and with a little discernment, you may flatter yourself on knowing France and the French. Yet in 1903, the Verdun Gorge, the largest canyon of France and considered one of the most beautiful canyons in Europe, a canyon so conveniently placed that Napoleon had marched along the east side and medieval crusaders had marched along the west, still hadn't been discovered yet. Well into the 20th century, as one phrase put it, the land least known in France is France itself. Yet, as the cyclists of the first Tour de France discovered as they approached Lyon, the only people with stronger isolationist tendencies than the Parisians were everyone else. In the next episode, we'll investigate the hidden France, a secret world of suspicion, mystery, and self-preservation, where outsiders could only mean one thing, trouble. Thank you for listening to The Land of Desire. As I announced at the beginning of this episode, thanks to generous contributions from all of you on the show's Patreon page, I'll now be releasing the very first Land of Desire bonus episodes later this month. If you'd like to gain access to these bonus episodes, make a contribution at any level at patreon.com slash thelandofdesire. I'll also be sending out the second issue of the Land of Desire newsletter this month. If you haven't signed up already, do so at thelandofdesire.com slash newsletter. Woof! It's going to be a busy month. While I'm working away at all these extra goodies, could I ask a favor from all of you? Please take time in the next few weeks to share the Land of Desire with your friends and social networks. Share a post from the show's Facebook page. Whenever someone on Reddit or Twitter asks for podcast recommendations, let them know about the Land of Desire. Write a review of the show on iTunes if you haven't done so already. All of these little actions add up to help others discover the Land of Desire, and I couldn't be more thankful. Now, I've got to sign off so I can get busy on all the treats I have in store for all of you this month. So until next time... Au revoir